Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we ask which electoral system leads to the fairest representation for women? Hello, my name is Alan Rennick, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. We're looking this week at the representation of women in parliaments. No democracy in the world has yet achieved equal representation for women in its national parliament. So it's important to understand what could be done to improve the situation. One long-standing idea is that some electoral systems may be better than others in enabling fairer representation. And a new article, co-authored by my colleague Dr Eleanor Woodhouse, sheds fresh light on the issue. Ellie is lecturer in public policy here in the UCL Department of Political Science. Avid podcast listeners may recognise her from an episode last term, and I'm delighted to say that she joins me again now. Ellie, welcome back to UCL Uncovering Politics. And let's start by saying a little more about the the underlying issue uh, that you're seeking to address here. How far away are we from equal representation for women today? Um, hello, Alan. So thank you um, for having me back on the podcast. It's um, a pleasure. Yes. Yeah, so as you pointed out, we um, know um, democracy in the world has yet um, reached um, equal female political representation. Um, and the same is true, in fact, for um, the gender gap more broadly. Um, so, for example, data from um, the World Economic Forum and their Global Gender Gap Index um, shows that no country in the world has yet closed the gender gap. There are some that are becoming kind of closer, and this is across a range of different um, indices, so economic, um, educational and political. Some are getting close, such as um, Iceland, Norway and Finland, for example. Um, and in the case of looking sort of purely at political representation, um, again, we have countries such as um, Iceland, Sweden and Finland and New Zealand, in fact, which um, now stands at 49.2% um, um, women's representation. But we still don't have um, a single democracy, as you note, in the world um, that has equal um, representation of men and women um, in our um, elected bodies. And in the lower house was the um, case that I was citing. Um, so I would argue as, as a woman and a, a, a person on this um, on this planet, it's important that we, we try and seek um, that type of equal representation and do so as, as broadly as possible and as soon as possible. Great, thank you. Uh, so as I said, you're focusing particularly on the role that electoral systems might play in this. And let's again, um, before we get to your particular research, dig into uh, our existing knowledge on this, if you like. So as I said in the intro, the, the argument that some electoral systems are better than others for women's representation has, has a very distinguished pedigree. Um, could you say a bit more about what we already know from, from that existing work? Yes, of course. So, um, as you say, it's a very um, rich and extensive literature and I um, contribute only a very small um, recent part. Um, so what has broadly been um, written about um, is essentially there's been kind of a broad exploration of the relationship between different families of electoral system um, and their relationship with um, women's representation more broadly. So um, if we're thinking about this in two kind of families of electoral systems, so um, majoritarian, so thinking um, first past the post or winner takes all, um, as opposed to um, proportional representation systems. Um, so I'm sure our readers are sort of broadly aware of what these two types of families of electoral rules do, but one essentially um, the, the electoral map is split into districts and individuals compete for those di districts. And then whichever party wins the most number of districts um, is 
becomes the the leading party, right? So majoritarian systems, whereas the kind of spirit behind proportional representation systems or PR systems um, is that you're going to have a share of seats that is um, reflective of um, the share of votes that you received. And so here we're um, usually talking about um, splitting up districts into um, a given number of seats. And then you ideally you'd have, you know, if a party receives 23% of um, the vote share, they would have 23% of the seats in parliament. So the idea is there that you, um, rather than having this kind of heavy majoritarian bonus, you have um, a more equal um, and kind of diverse representation of parties um, elected to um, the lower house um, is the case that I'm talking about. So on the whole, there's broad consensus that essentially PR, so proportional representation systems, are associated with higher women's um, political representation. Um, and that's precisely what um, in this paper, which is co-authored with um, Paolo Profeta at Bocconi, um, we aim to look at. So um, yeah, I guess that's what we're going to be talking about next, but that's the kind of background um, to this paper. No, that's really helpful. Thank you. And just before, sorry, I'm going to hold off even further getting to your paper, because uh, there's interesting stuff in the existing literature. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's just it's useful to, to know that before we get into your, your contribution. Um, mm-hmm. So we know that there is this pattern where proportional systems tend to be associated with higher representation for women. I'm still not equal, but but higher than, than we get into under first-past-the-post systems. Um do we know why? Do we know what the, the underlying mechanisms are there? Um, so we have um, various ideas. Um, pinning down exactly what it is is, um, of course, challenging. But yeah, there are multiple hypotheses. So um, one hypothesis, for example, is that it's to do with um, the type of competition that we see under these two different systems. So under majoritarian systems, the idea is that this is a head-to-head um, competition. And it's been shown in both experimental and real-world settings that um, women tend to have an aversion to this type of head-to-head um, competition. And the idea is that this may um, reduce the um, number of women coming forward as candidates. Um, there are numerous other mechanisms that um, have been hypothesized. So, for example, um, another is that under proportional representation systems, um, the parties themselves have um incentives to ensure that they present a diverse ballot. The idea being that when you're showing um, you're presenting your list of candidates, it's much more obvious than it would be in a kind of fragmented, split-up majoritarian system with um, individual races when you have a disproportionate number of men or women because you're presenting precisely this list and it's easy for voters to see when you have um, too many men, for example, um, or this also applies to minority groups. Um, similar, sort of similar in spirit to that argument is also the idea that under proportional representation systems, um, there's a higher district magnitude. So there are a greater number of seats available. Um, and it's been argued that the deeper parties can pull from um, their lists, the more likely you are um, to get women, and which is linked to the incumbency advantage, the idea that historically, because more men had been um, elected in politics, they would be more likely to be at the top of the list. Um, And it's also true, finally, I could talk about this for much longer, but I'll try and just summarize it it briefly. Um, It's also um, easier in many ways to incorporate certain features into proportional um, systems, such as gender quotas. So having um, a fixed 
percentage of candidates, for example, who have to be of a, of a given gender. And um, that's kind of easier to integrate into proportional representation systems than it is majoritarian systems. That's really interesting. Thank you. So you've got some possible mechanisms there that are to do with candidates and who feels comfortable putting themselves forward as candidates. Then you have some mechanisms to do with voters and who or what lists voters are willing to vote for. So the argument there is that the voters might be a little bit prejudiced against women to the extent that if they're they're voting for a single candidate, then even if they're not kind of um, aware of their prejudice, they might find it more attractive to vote for a man than to vote for a woman. But if they're voting for a whole slate of candidates, then they're going to notice that a whole slate that is just men is obviously not fair and representative and they're more likely to prefer a kind of balanced slate. Yeah, exactly. Well, it has been shown quite convincingly, I would argue, in the literature that, in fact, voters tend not to be biased against women candidates. It tends to be more a problem of kind of institutional structural features that mean it's difficult for women. This this is much broader than just politics as well, right? Like we're talking about um, women's role in the workforce, um, welfare, maternity, like multiple institutional reasons for which women may not be able to come forward as candidates at the same kind of frequency as men. Um, but on the whole, the, the literature would show that voters tend not to be um, biased against women. And indeed, so the, the, the mechanism I was talking about there is precisely on the ballots that you see in proportional um, systems that you are more like voters respond well to having a diversity of candidates um, on there. Mm, fascinating fascinating great so we know lots about the overall pattern and we have some pretty good hunches at least about what are the underpinning mechanisms so in your own research project uh what was it that you wanted to add to that existing knowledge yes so um so as i mentioned before and there's a a very big literature that tells us that it looks like proportional um, representation systems um, are more conducive to having higher female representation or women's representation than majoritarian systems. Um, but much of this evidence um, was cross-national. Um, and the, the, the problem or the challenge here is that there may be reasons for which countries choose certain electoral systems that are to do with their broader kind of cultural makeups that would influence both the choice of electoral system and the number of women that you see being elected. So what we wanted to do was to present um, causal evidence or try to move towards causality to show that it is, in fact, the electoral system and not some other broader um, cultural um, feature that um, increases women's representation um, in politics. Um, So we have here the idea that correlation does not prove causation, essentially. Uh, We need to go a bit deeper in order to identify whether there's really a causal mechanism from the electoral system to the levels of representation. Yes, exactly. And so because the existing um, literature was either cross-national, so as I just mentioned, you you sort of don't have an idea of whether these these institutions were um, instigated because of um, other cultural factors, or there are also, there were, there were existing studies that kind of looked into pre and post um pre and post reforms but were not didn't have a within country counterfactual and um, so what we did is we came up with um a research design and um, that was within country so that means that you can hold constant many of those cultural institutional um, features that might influence women's representation and you can um, essentially use um 
what's known as yeah, a natural experiment, a natural experiment, um, to see whether it is the the effect of the electoral rule itself that has this influence on um, women's representation. So you use that phrase there, within country counterfactual, which some people will have understood and some people might have thought that's a bit bewildering. So essentially what you're saying here is that we've got, basically we've got elections to two kinds of bodies going on in the same country and the electoral system changes for one of the bodies, but it stays the same for the other one. And therefore you're able to kind of compare these two in order to understand the the impact that the electoral system change specifically is having. Yes, exactly. So thank you, Alan. You just kind of, I think, summarised it very well. So what we do is we use um, the case of of Italy um, and it's a natural experiment. So what happens is that in 2005, um, there was um, an electoral reform at only the national level of government. And Italy has four different levels of government. So sub-national levels, so the regions, the provinces and um, the municipalities, and they were not affected um, by this um, reform of the electoral rule. So what we're able to do is leverage um, basically the sort of change over time um, in such a way as to estimate the effect of of this reform, so the 2005 reform, on women's um, political representation. Um, So the the reform itself essentially moved um, the Italian national level of government from um, a mixed system that was um, 75% um, majoritarian and 25% um, PR, proportional representation, and moved it to um, a fully proportional um, representation system um, with closed lists. I can can talk more about the details, but that's that's the kind of the key factor. So in 2005, there was this change. in electoral system, and that's what we're we're focusing on. Um, and essentially, what this does is it creates this um, natural experiment, as we as we called it before. Um, and what we do is we use um, a quasi experimental design called a difference uh, difference in differences technique that essentially makes use of um, longitudinal data um, from these treatment and control groups. So, as I just mentioned, the, the treatment group in this case is the national level of government. And the control group are the the local the the subnational levels of government, um, and the, the the difference in differences or or different diff, um, technique is is typically used to estimate these types of effects. So when you have um some type of reform that changes something going on within your country, and you want to estimate the effect of that um reform. Um, in in your context of of study, um, so the the basic idea I'm going to try and explain this is um in the way that I, I find intuitive, at least, is that in the absence of treatment, so in the absence of um, the electoral reform in my case. We should maybe just explain the the word treatment here, because it's quite an interesting yes. uh, word. So we're, we're kind of coming from medical trials uh, terminology, aren't we? And, and yes. where, where you have, you're testing out a drug and you've got the drug and you're comparing it with a placebo. So you're, that's your, your treatment, if you like. You're giving people the drug or they're not really getting a treatment at all because they're just getting the placebo and you're able to uh, measure the effect. So that's that's why we use the terminology of treatments here. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Ali. You're right to sort of stop me there. So exactly, because we're talking about um, a natural experiment, we're using this type of of, um, of language. So of, of treatment and control is precisely taken from this, this kind of medical um, type of vocabulary. So um, again, in, in this case, so the treatment is that level of government. So here in the national case, which was treated with um, the reform under study. So the change from um, the mixed system to the pure um proportional representation system. Um, And the idea is that essentially in the absence of treatment, 
um, the, unob the unobserved differences between the treatment and the control groups um, looks the same over time. So one of the main, um, it's called an identifying assumption, but this that's kind of by the by, uh, that's needed for this type of design, so the, the difference in differences, um, is precisely that there are parallel trends between the control group and the treatment group. So this means that they, um, over the years prior to the reform, um, look move in the same direction. So they don't necessarily have to be at the same level, but they have to be moving in parallel. And then the idea is that when the reform hits, that only affects the treated group. And then what you can do is you can leverage the fact that they were moving in parallel previously to estimate the effect of the treatment only on, on, on the treated group, which is what you're interested in. Um, I think, does that make sense? Yeah, that's <laughs> making sense. So you've got them, you've got the two things, um, in this case, the national elections and the, lo the local and regional elections. Mm -hmm. um, they're going along in parallel before the reform, before the treatment. Yes. And then you have the treatment. So if suddenly they're not going along in parallel anymore, then you're thinking, well, that must be because of the treatment, because of the, the, the reform. Whereas exactly. if they do keep going along in parallel, then even if, even if that's kind of a trend of change that they're both going through, the, the change is not kind of attributable to the reform. because you, you, So you're able to strip out that kind of trend from, exactly. from the, the effect of the reform itself. Exactly. Stripping out the trend is exactly, it's a great way of putting it. And so the idea is that essentially if there weren't this, um, this reform, you would expect those trends to continue along in parallel. Fantastic. So I love it when we get into methodology like this, because um, it sounds quite technical and the, the language can be quite alien for people um, who, who are not used to it. But actually, in many ways, it's quite kind of intuitive and um, it, it makes yeah. sense. So just... Uh, I think yeah. so. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I think as long as exactly, I, I don't know if I did a good job of it, but I think when it's explained well, often much of the intuition behind these types of, particularly these um, kind of quasi-experimental um, techniques are are quite intuitive. Yeah. Great. So that's what you did. Um, the key question then is, what did you find? So um, thank you. It's That is indeed the key question. So what, what we found is precisely what we were expecting to find, which is that um, given the, the rich and vast literature that I mentioned before, suggesting that um, proportional representation systems were uh, um, sort of foster higher women's representation, sorry, women's political representation. And that's exactly what we find. So we um, estimate an effect of a 5% increase in women's national level and um, political representation that comes with the reform. Um, so just to reiterate, reiterate the reform from a mixed um, but mostly majoritarian system to um, a full PR system comes is associated with a 5% increase in women's um, political representation, according to our estimates. That's great. So I guess one might think that this, with this kind of reform, it might take a while for changes to come through. It might be that you don't get an immediate effect, that rather things kind of emerge over time. I mean, is, is that what you see or do you... Is there really an immediate effect that we see from one election to the next, essentially? Um, it is an, an immediate effect. Then, of course, there can be kind of consolidation effects, and you might see that um, increasing over time. But we do find that effect um, to, to happen immediately. Great. So that's the core of your paper. <laughs> but you also look at um, a second aspect of this. So you look not just at the relationship between the voting system and women's political representation, but you also look at how qualified the candidates are uh, and those who are elected, the candidates who are actually elected are. Um, 
I mean, I guess the first question here is, what's the connection? Why is it relevant to be looking at that when fundamentally we're interested in understanding women's representation here? That's a great question. So as we've established, um, there's a large literature that um, associates electoral rules with um, differing levels of women's um, representation. And there's also um, a large literature that um, also sort of associates different types of electoral rules with different um, kind of quality or qualifications of politicians. I'm going to use the word um, qualification because to talk about the quality of a politician is quite um, a difficult thing to measure. Um, and, and so I'm going to use the word qualification, even if it's a little bit um, kind of clumsy, because it seemed, I think it more kind of accurately describes um, what I'm going to be talking about here. Um, and, and that's, yeah, discussed a bit more kind of broadly in the paper. Um, but there's also this literature that shows um, that the different types of competition associated with different electoral rules. So going back here again to majoritarian rules as opposed to proportional rules um, are associated with different levels of qualification amongst politicians. Um, at the same time, we um, also know from the literature more broadly that um, women politicians tend to be um, of a higher qualification level than men. So the idea when we kind of went into this um, project was to try and explore a little bit further this um, kind of counterbalancing effect that we might expect from a change in electoral rules. So the idea is that um, under majoritarian um, rules, because of the nature of competition, so it being head to head and being kind of focused on the characteristics of individual politicians rather than the party list more broadly, which is what we see um, under PR rules, um, is that you can get higher quality um, politicians. But what we, what our hunch was, is that because the, um, we expected the the PR um, rule to bring more women in with it. We sort of expected that the increase in women politicians might help to kind of counterbalance balance this potential decrease that we would expect to see in um, the qualification of politicians that would come with a move to PR rules. Great. And what did you find on this one? Um, so again, so here um, I have to note we're moving to a more simple research design. We're not looking at the difference in differences um, estimation strategy anymore. So this, these are um, it's just suggestive evidence rather than causal evidence. Um, so basically, what we find is is what we expected. So um, as we move from the majoritarian system to the proportional system, what we find is that the our measures of qualification of politicians essentially remain constant, if not slightly um, increasing, but it's it's hard to kind of um, capture exactly what that means. Um, so it seems like indeed the increase in um, women politicians is potentially associated with this kind of counterbalancing effect that reduces any negative um, impacts that might come with um, a switch to a proportional electoral system. We are able to kind of home in on that a little bit further um, for the election year of 2013, where we have um, data available also on candidates as well as um, elected politicians. And there, what we're able to show is that um, the, the, essentially there's a pool of higher quality um, women who remain in the candidate pool, so who are not elected. Um, and the idea here is in line with existing literature that proportional systems um, are sometimes not um, fully able to select the very best candidates that are available. And the suggestion here is that if there are a way to kind of get these women um, elected, so out of the candidate pool and into the kind of elected pool, that we would perhaps see an even kind of an increase, perhaps even in the, the quality of politicians overall. 
So if I can just add up these various different effects in my mind and make sure I've got this right. So we know that proportional electoral rules are better for electing women. We also know, however, that in general, proportional rules are less good at electing highly qualified people. So if we want to have highly qualified politicians, then proportional rules are, other things being equal, less good. Um, but actually, those two effects kind of add up to, to mean that overall, you don't have uh, a diminution in the qualifications of people elected after the reform compared to before the reform, because uh, you're getting more women and therefore they're kind of pulling up the qualification levels, if you like. Yes, exactly. And this is very much in line. Thank you for summarising that so nicely. Um, I know there are lots of, of moving pieces. Um, and this does actually fit in um, quite well with the broader literature that looks at um, quotas, for example. So the role of quotas in politics and how that affects um, the quality of, of politicians and also more broadly even in on, on boards of companies, for example. Because often here there's an argument that, you know, oh, you introduce a quota and because you have to kind of really scrape the, the barrel, you're not going to get um, equally good candidates. And that's been shown to be absolutely not the case. And in fact, um, women candidates are often more as or more qualified than their male counterparts. Um, so this kind of fits quite well in that kind of broader um, landscape of um, thinking about the, the quality of women candidates specifically in, in the world of, of politics here. Yes, good. So, the yeah. So the counter argument to quotas that you sometimes hear is that they're they're getting in the way of meritocracy. Essentially, that you're no longer simply appointing the best candidate or electing the best candidate in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, you're showing that no, they're not do- doing that at all. They're they're countering a lack of meritocracy in the system already. That the system is already not adequately choosing. Uh, better qualified women and um, adjusting the system is going to help counter that inequality. Yeah, exactly. Um, and ag- again, uh, this this is in the paper and is is explored sort of um, suggestive work rather than um, causal. But we also explore how these types of dynamics play out in across the geography of Italy, which has um, very different um, gender norms, and we exploit that. To try and see, to try and get a little bit at, at what you were just talking about. So, in areas where there are more traditional gender norms, what did what did the dynamics that we found look like? And we find, as we sort of would have expected, that they are worse. And the idea here is that, um, so again, that means that we in the candidate pool we find more highly qualified women who somehow are kind of they're not translated into um, elected figures. And the idea here, which is in line with um, existing literature, is it's called the, the sort of mediocre male leader is the the way that that's um, written about in, in the literature. And the idea is that in these areas where you you have sort of more gender traditional norms, um, male leaders in particular would be um, less keen on um, stronger women candidates coming forward as that would potentially pose a threat to their leadership. And the idea is that they would therefore, you know, like to have some women on board, but perhaps not the strongest candidates as they would be more likely to challenge their um, their power, essentially. We could talk about this for a, a much longer, but we have time for just one more question. So um, the evidence that you've got here is <laughs> from Italy. Uh, to what extent do you think that you're findings travel to other cases as well? 
Um, yeah, so this is um, always difficult to evaluate. So in this, one of the downsides, of course, of kind of focusing on a causal story is that you you really focus in on your internal validity. So how much kind of sense your research design makes within itself. But that does um, come at the cost of how kind of your external validity. So the extent to which you think these findings would apply elsewhere. Um, so one thing I would like to say is that I think Italy is so in some ways, it's seen as um, a kind of outlier amongst developed countries in terms of gender equality. Um, it's you know not kind of super well known um, for being um, particularly gender equal. But that being said, um, in terms of kind of global um, rankings of gender equality, um, Italy is in many ways much more kind of represent representative than um, some of the countries on which m much of the literature on um women's representation in politics is based, which tend to be the Nordic countries, which is great because they have wonderful data and it means you can you can undertake these fantastic studies. But it does, I think, that is somewhat limited in that in that there's sort of gender norms and even the institutions um, that, that we find in countries such as Iceland, Norway and Finland are very different to many other countries in the world. And I think in, in many ways, Italy is um, more similar. So uh, the kind of vast majority of countries, um, both in terms of, um, of gender equality and also in terms of um, the kind of the health of its of its democracy. It's been dubbed a, a flawed democracy, um, which means that it's characterized by the majority, in fact, of, of the world's um, democracies. So I think it's um, ultimately something that will be addressed by, I hope, other um within country studies that can ask the same or similar questions. But I don't think it's unreasonable to expect um, similar effects um, to occur in, in, in other contexts. Very good. There's always more research to be done. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Ellie, thank you. It's been so interesting. I really like these episodes where we get to explore a really important question, but we also get to kind of tease apart the research process and understand just how we can do top quality research into these issues. So thank you so much. It's been fascinating. Thank you. And the article that we've been discussing is called Electoral Rules, Women's Representation and the Qualification of Politicians. It's by Paula Profeta and Eleanor F. Woodhouse. It's published in the journal Comparative Political Studies, so far in the online first section. And we will, of course, put all of those details in the show notes for this episode. We'll be back next week. As ever, to make sure you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics, all you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast provider you use. But before I finish, let me add this week a special thank you. Abby Turner has been the producer of UCL Uncovering Politics since our very first episode two years ago. And she's done a fantastic job of organising, editing, uploading, publicising, and much else besides. Alas, however, this is her final episode as she moves on to Pastures New. So, Abby, thank you. You've been terrific, and we wish you all the very best for the future. I'm Alan Rennick. Our producer has been Abby Turner. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening. <laughs>